Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Beater podcast, where birders talk birding. A lot of times in my introduction to an episode, I will talk about my recent birding or something that's come to mind. Well, recently, I, as I often do when I see a species that interests me while I'm out birding for the day, will go back home and online look up Birds of the World. Birds of the World is a website put out by Cornell University, the same people that do eBird. It's a subscription model, and you can subscribe to that. And on there, they have a monograph about almost every species in the world. And in this monograph is everything you could want to know about that bird. If you need to know something and want to know something about a species, the chances are you'll find it in the monograph of Birds of the World. I use it all the time. It's a terrific product. I recommend it to birders and people with a history interest in ornithology or nature in itself. It's a terrific option. Uh, so you also get to support uh eBird and Cornell's uh, Lab of Ornithology. So it's a win-win for everyone. Anyway, uh, check it out. Well, of course, it's winter now in Washington, and birds flock in the winter. Bush tits are no exception. Uh, Bush tits are this really, really freaking cool bird. These little tiny, very busy gray birds have this distinctive little note that uh, it's hard to even describe what it sounds like that you can hear them by and see them. They're often in big flocks in the winter and they're just busy. If you have a suet feeder, they'll often come to your suet feeder, but they just bop around in these swarming groups. Up, you know, sometimes 20, 30, 40 birds in the winter can be very busy and very delightful to see. Uh, but I learned about how they make their nests. It's really cool. They have two methods of nest making. First of all, think about their nest. They are a long, dangly nest. If you've ever seen an oriole nest, they are fastened to a branch in a tree and they dangle down and they're made out of grass and other uh, vegetative material. But you always wonder, how do they stick them together? Well, this is how they build them. They have two methods. But the cool method, I think, is where they build a platform uh, on the forks of a branch, and they make that mostly out of spider webs with some vegetative material. So it's stretchy and strong from the spider webs. Well, one of the birds, usually the female most of the time, sits on that platform of spider webs and stretches it downward. So the little bit of weight of that bird will stretch it down, and the other of the pair, usually the male, will be rushing around to add material to it to make it stronger. So as, as this platform stretches down and stretches down and stretches down, it's being strengthened by more and more material, and it forms a long neck with a dangly little nest egg sac in the bottom of it. And uh, so usually it takes a while, and that bird builds its nest that way. Other times they build it by just building a long tubular neck and, and nest sack on the bottom, uh, kind of like you'd think a nest like that would be built. But what a cool thing that that little tiny bush tits using her weight to sit on that, that uh, platform of spider webs to stretch the nest down and form a dangly nest. So check out Birds of the World and read about bush tits or what other, whatever other species interests you. Uh, well, that brings me to my guest this week. Not that he has anything to do with bush tits. Alex Patch is my guest this week. Alex is a birder uh, who's living in Washington now and has been doing lots of birding on the Olympic Peninsula near where he lives. Uh, he has done big years in Washington and big years in New Mexico and a, a quasi big year in the ABA uh, since he started birding just a few years ago. So Alex is an avid birder and a really interesting guest today. I hope you enjoy the Bird Banner podcast episode 91 with Alex Patcha. 
Alex, thanks for being on the podcast today. I've been hoping to talk with you. How are you? I'm doing great, Ed. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, yeah, it should be fun. Uh, first of all, I'd like to sometimes start with just your birding story. How did you get into birding and uh, some of the sort of the, you know, just people and birds and other things that have influenced you in your development as a bird? Yeah, well, I, uh, I grew up in uh, Springfield, Illinois, and uh, as long as I can remember, uh, I was I was a kid that was always interested in natural history, uh, getting outside, and as as a kid was definitely more interested in like, finding reptiles and amphibians, catching frogs and creatures that I could hold and look at up close. Uh, but yeah, I was I was outside a lot. I had parents that you know really made a point of getting me outside and recognized my interest in natural history. Had a lot of field guides lying around my house growing up. So even though I wasn't really focused on birds, I definitely have a lot of uh, a lot of vivid memories of the you know first mostly like large charismatic birds I saw growing up. You know, I remember seeing the first great blue heron uh, and just thinking this thing is a dinosaur. This is a living dinosaur, you know, among us, and uh, it made a pretty big impression on me. Um, but I think the most the bird that stands out maybe like I uh, I guess I would call it my uh, uh, spark bird <laughs> in a way it was, uh, I was only like eight years old and, uh, we came home one day and there was a great horned owl perched in our backyard and it had a mob of maybe a hundred or so crows around it. And, uh, we got out, you know, we had a pair of binoculars, got out, took a look and the great horned owl actually had one of the crows in its talons. Very nice. And, uh, yeah, it just stood for what I felt like a long time, just locked eyes with this great horned owl and i i think i didn't really get into like serious birding for until later in adulthood but i definitely was hooked and fascinated by birds from that point onward yeah so i think uh it's it was for a slow burn sort of you know throughout my adolescence you know this casual interest in birds that later became you know sort of full-blown you know passion that i have now i guess bordering on obsession as i'm sure a lot of a lot of birders can relate. Probably not bordering on, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Probably over, over the line, I'm guessing. It's like a lot of us. Anyway, yes. How, how did you, Evergreen, Evergreen State College in Olympia. You know, you're my second guest who attended Evergreen State College. And it's, you know, a little obscure. Even yeah. if you're in Washington, forget about being from right. Illinois. How did you ever hear about Evergreen State College? <laughs> well, um, I was always a kid that, you know, really struggled learning in the classroom, setting, sitting still. Uh, At the same time, you got me outside and I wanted to learn about everything. I'd get all my field guides and I always, I knew that being outside and, you know, really having like ear experiential learning experiences, that was what I was all about. So I, I was looking for a college that was really experiential based and outside the classroom and getting hands on with you know, field science and field ecology. And uh, I definitely got that at Evergreen State College. Um, I did pretty much all, you know, everything I did there was, uh, you know, field ecology related in some way, uh, outside most of the time, uh, taking detailed, you know, uh, notes on uh, botany and forest ecology. And uh, that's kind of where I, the, the birding obsession started. I, you know, that's when I first started keeping checklists of all the birds I was seeing. It's mm-hmm. a great place for that. I mean, the campus, if you haven't been there and, and Evergreen State College in uh, uh, Olympia, Washington, it's surrounded by, you know, 
hundreds of acres of forest. So there's lots of, uh, lots of exploring to do, lots of birds to be seen. Uh, so it was a really great place to, uh, for somebody who is looking for a, a different kind of learning experience where you can be more hands-on and outdoors, especially uh, doing, I think for as far as like a field, you know, science goes and, and environmental studies, it's perfect for that. And that's, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Well, fabulous. And, yeah. and I think I saw on your, maybe on your Facebook timeline or somewhere as I was uh, perusing, trying to learn about you before this uh, recording, uh, did you go to California for like a study abroad or study a field or something like that? Did I see something about a California college in there too? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a, I had one summer, I did a couple like study abroad programs, um, well, I guess California's not abroad, but I uh, I did okay, a, a you're from Olympia, it's, it's right, right. Uh, <laughs> I um, I did a summer there in Big Sur, um, uh, studying sea otters actually. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely saw some cool birds there. That's still the only California condor I've ever seen was there in Big Sur. Mm-hmm. Um, I've looked for them a few times elsewhere, like in Arizona, without success since. But yeah, I uh, I also did a a month studying abroad in Chile and Costa Rica, and unfortunately, at those times I, uh, you know, I was keeping checklists. I was noticing some of the more obvious birds, but uh, overall, I was you know I was there to study ecology and was way more like focused on plants and reptiles and mammals. And I I think from each country, Chile and Costa Rica, I saw less than. 60 species of birds, mm-hmm. which given the diversity in both those countries, is seems like a small list now. You know, I, I definitely, I, I at least noted some, you know, I've got, I, I fortunately kept those few little checklists where I have like mm-hmm. resplendent quetzal that I did see in Costa Rica. And in Chile, we were camping one place where uh, Magellanic woodpeckers were building a nest right by our campsite. Wow. So there, there were some good birds for sure there, but um, you know, I, I definitely have a lot of regret that I didn't uh, wasn't in more into birds back then. Yeah, you got started earlier than I did. I have uh, a lot of regrets about that sort of thing too. But Chile, uh, Costa Rica is super exciting. My daughter lives in yeah. Costa Rica. Uh, oh, nice. And yeah, she's been there three years now, and I think that's her home now. And uh, I am I got my uh, second dose of COVID vaccine here recently, and I am headed out on the twenty fifth for a month to visit her. So. I'm oh, fantastic. Super, super excited about uh, birding Costa Rica. I visited it once before a couple of years ago and would have been in the, in the interim except for this uh, travel issues. Uh, but uh, I'm super, super excited. I have been reading my field guides and how to find <laughs> bird guides and looking up maybe a guide to hire for a day or two down there too. So I cannot wait to get back. That's uh, That's almost the best part of traveling and seeing birds and as like the looking through the field guide and getting ready and thinking about like all the, all the possibilities, all the birds you can see that area. Um, I haven't traveled abroad since, since college really. So it's been like close to a decade now. Um, but I have all these field guides for different places abroad. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I spent a lot of time looking at those field guides and thinking about all the, all the future birding adventures I can go on. Yes, it is. It is part of the game, you know, the study, the anticipation, uh, the, you know, the stories that come up, you know, the, you know, the chigger bites and the <laughs> other various <laughs> things that come along with travel sometimes, but that's all okay. That is okay. So tell me, you went to Evergreen and mm-hmm. you've had a number of uh, experiences since then. Tell me about some of those. 
Yeah, so uh, straight out of Evergreen, I went into a graduate program, uh, a master's in education program at Western Washington University. Uh, and it's a, um, unfortunately, that program is no longer running, but uh, for a while, it was this really great program that uh, involved a year long residency at North Cascades Institute. So you're, for most of the graduate program, I was, you know, getting hands on teaching experience uh, at this environmental education center in North Cascades National Park. Uh, so that was pretty incredible, you know, and I, I knew uh, pretty early on at Evergreen that I kind of wanted to go into the direction of teaching, but uh, providing those same kinds of, you know, hands-on outside education programs that I knew I thrived in. And I know a lot of, a lot of kids do really, you know, a lot better when they're able to learn outside and uh, learn about nature, you know, out in it and be, you know, <laughs> see the real, the real thing. So, um, I knew I wanted to go in that direction and, uh, I'm really glad I found that, you know, I'm glad I found Evergreen. I'm glad I found this graduate program that really, uh, got me in a good start towards, uh, being an environmental educator and naturalist. So going out of that program, uh, I worked a lot of different seasonal environmental education jobs. That's kind of the name of the game with environmental education. It's, it's a lot mm -hmm. of seasonal work. Uh, but the, great thing about that is it's taken me to a lot of different places. I've been really fortunate to work kind of all over the place. You know, I went to Portland, Oregon for a little while. Um, and then in 2014, I ended up in Southern California working with a nonprofit called Nature Bridge. And that was a really great season. Uh, I actually went back there in 2015 as well. They do programs in the Santa Monica mountains and also out on the Channel Islands. Uh, and the school groups that would come there and learn about, you know, do these environmental education programs, they'd be camping. So the kids, you know, we'd set up tents for them and we'd be out hiking all day. Uh, so for the Channel Islands programs, we would be on Santa Cruz Island camping and hiking around for wow. several days at a time, which was really cool. You know, I, uh, I was definitely, 2014 was kind of my year that I became, I'd say, a full-on birder, partly because I started using eBird. So mm -hmm. I started actually listing and realizing how many more birds were around that I wasn't finding. And I would, I made a, I'd start, I'd say I started make, making a more serious effort to see all the birds. So, uh, and then moving to a, a place that I'd never been to before really or seen any of the birds definitely was a good way to get me hooked into birding. So seeing island scrub jays every week was pretty fascinating. And, and all these nesting colonies of brown pelicans, uh, I was definitely hooked at that point. And later in 2014, I ended up at Mount Rainier, as I worked with Mount Rainier Institute, it's a pretty new, or well, then it was a brand, brand new uh, environmental education program. So I got back to Washington for a little bit. I was definitely a lister at that point, uh, but I wasn't aware of rare bird alerts. Oh. Um, so I, uh, I went out birding in, uh, I spent one weekend in, out in Toppenish uh, Wildlife Refuge near Yakima. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my first Washington birding friends was uh, Eric Heisey, and he, uh, I remember he, he texted me, and he was asking, like, hey, so uh, why aren't you out at Nia Bay? There's, uh, there's this Eurasian hobby out here, and cattle egret, and brambling, um, and I had no idea, because I, I, didn't, I didn't know about rare bird alerts, or, you know, uh, tweeters, none of that. I wasn't aware of any of those kind of uh, listservs at the time, so I definitely missed out big then. So I went into 2015, back in Southern California, and at that point, I, you know, was getting rare bird alerts. So um, 
it was a very different kind of season. I was going all over California trying to find different rare birds. Um, and from Southern California, I for the summer and fall, I ended up going to uh, Maine for a season working at uh, a camp called Chuanki. Um, and I, I found out about that because one of my coworkers, uh, she was going there to work and she's like, you know, they're, they're actually looking specifically for a bird guy who's going to can do uh, programs all about birds for kids. And it's like, that sounds like a great way to spend a summer. So yeah. um, that's what took me out to Maine. Um, and uh, an interesting side note, that camp is where uh, Roger Troy Peterson had his first job. Uh, it's the camp that's, you know, that's, they're over 100 years old. And so mm-hmm. Roger Troy Peterson worked there way back in the 20s, I believe, when he was starting to work on his Birds of North America paintings. Wow. Um, so that camp has a long tradition of, you know, it's, it's not, it's no Camp Chiricahua. It's not birding focused by any means, the overall, but they definitely have some really great offerings for kids that are interested in birds and natural history. So um, where in Maine is that? So it's, uh, it's just outside the town of Wiscasset, kind of, oh, okay. I guess, yeah, central coast. coast. Yeah. 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 Really I great grew, spot. I grew up in Maine. I, I yeah. Maine. Yeah. And uh, so I've, uh, I haven't birded Maine extensively because I usually go back every summer and, and uh, at least when my folks were alive, it was usually a family visit. I just kind of maybe get a couple of afternoons and maybe an early morning I could dash out and do some birding. But uh, in recent years, my folks have passed and I tend to have more, when I go back and visit my brother, he's not as demanding of my time as my folks were. Uh, and uh, so I get to travel around a bit. So I've met uh, part of the birding community there. And, oh my nice. goodness, it's so fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I love living in Maine and birding there. You know, it's the only place I've lived on the East Coast, and I think I, I picked a good spot to to spend a season. Um, oh, and another part of the the program I was doing that was, uh, you know, it ended up being a pretty big group of kids that were interested in the bird programs. Um, you know, I think it, it started with just a couple kids interested in birds, and we went out on bird walks every morning, and uh, every day the kids would share their stories about all the cool birds we saw, and you know, more and more, it was like, it got to be like 20 to 30 kids that wanted to do these birding programs every day. Yeah. Um, and so we started doing uh, puffin trips where we went out uh, and did the uh, Eastern Egg Rock um, oh, puffin tours. One of my favorite boat rides. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I did you know, like five or six of those boat trips that summer. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we saw, and they were, you know, all lifers for me. Uh, sure. For, you know, razor bills and the Atlantic puffins. Um, yeah, it was, that was a very fun summer. And I think it was partway through my time working in Maine and having lived in Southern California and driven through Texas, Arizona, and then up to Maine, I was like, oh, I've got a, I've got a pretty decent year list going. Uh, the season wraps up in October. I was like, I should just drive around and make a, a big ish year of this. Sure. And, um, you know, I, I, Late summer is a, a late time to decide to do a U.S. big year, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I saw so I had some I had some catching up to do. But when I finished my season in October, I drove straight down to the Everglades in like like two and a half days, a pretty insane drive from mm-hmm. Maine to Everglades. But I got down there, and same thing. That was lifers left and right. Um, I wasn't really chasing, you know, super rare you know, birds for the ABA by any means. It was most of the, more of the common stuff that I just hadn't really seen before because I hadn't been in the area. But sure. uh, I did do the uh, 
the infamous kayak out to see the uh, the American flamingos that for a long time were hanging out in Snakebite in the yeah, Everglades. And I've, I've walked that trail, I think, three times, have oh. 9,512 mosquito bites and no American yeah. flamingos. Yeah. I got really lucky, and it was a breezy, slightly cooler day by Everglades standards. You know, I think it was like, I started out in the morning, it was like in the 60s and breezy, so the mosquitoes weren't Mm-hmm. horrific. <laughs> and I got out in the water and, you know, out in the water, they weren't bad at no, all. There's just sure. enough breeze to keep them at bay. And, uh, I did make the mistake though, of going around low tide. So there's lots of, you know, trying to push my way out of mud flats. And, uh, mm-hmm. but I finally got out there and, uh, yeah, they, I, nothing, you know, no flamingos anywhere in sight for a while, but then they came and they landed right in front of my kayak wow. and strutted around for a while. Um, so it was a pretty amazing experience. That actually, overall, from my U.S. what's called a medium year, my my U.S. medium year, uh, that was the standout burning experience oh. for sure. It was seeing American flamingos, um, and I'd met a couple of Florida birders already. I went on a little Audubon walk, and one of the Florida birders I met texted me saying, uh, "You should you should get up north really quickly. There's a variegated flycatcher up here." Oh. Um, yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, um, I rushed from, you know, kayaked my way back. And so on the same day, I saw American flamingos and right before dusk saw a variegated flycatcher flying around this cemetery. And uh, that's actually, I, I met uh, uh, some former guests of yours, uh, David and Tammy McQuaid. McQuaid's, yeah. They, yeah. If there was, was, was a rare bird in Florida the last six or eight years, uh, they were probably at it. Yes. Yeah. They were, they were already on the scene when I got there. So, uh, I, I met them. Um, yeah, my, my medium big year definitely pales in comparison to the the years they do every year. I, I mm-hmm. ended at 540 species that year. And that was even after a trip to the lower Rio Grande and Saxon bog, you know, I, I racked up a bunch of species last minute, but, um, it was, it was good for a, a fairly haphazard, not at all planned, just traveling around to good birding spots, kind of big year at the end. You know, that may be the best kind of big year. When you just go to some really good places and see what you see, that's uh, hard to beat that. My, yeah. my, uh, I have my own Everglades story. My first day of birding ever was at the Everglades. Uh, my wife nice. was a closet birder. I, she was a birder, and I'd been married for a while. I didn't even know she was a birder. She, uh, <laughs> she started birding when she was... Uh, Right out of college, she took a, a job with uh, Boise Cascade at, on the brush crew in Idaho and lived with three guys from Southern California who are all avid birders uh, and doing summer work up there. And they got her into birding and she was kind of on again, off again, birder here and there. Uh, and we're driving by the Everglades and she said, Ed, we, we've just got to go to, we had a day to kill. We're leaving uh, two days at Key West when I didn't bird, unfortunately, uh, and driving by the Everglades on the way to visit my folks in Hudson, Florida, up on the, up on the uh, Gulf Coast. And she says, why don't we go see if we can stay at the Everglades? I've always wanted to go there. And I'm like, oh, I guess so, you know, what? Well, sure. We've seen alligators already, but yeah, we can go to the Everglades. So we go pull in. And we stop at the range. This was before the ranger station, right at the entrance there, out of Homestead, I think, was, uh, you know, destroyed by the hurricane. And uh, and so we pull into the ranger station, and she walks in and said, 
I want to find a pileated woodpecker. Where could I find a pileated woodpecker? And I said, you didn't see him on the way in? I can hear him right now. We just listen. And they're pounding away on these palm trees in the parking lot. So we go out. She shows me a pileated woodpecker. And I said, well, this is pretty cool. And we walk out. I see red-winged blackbirds and doves and just different things right in the parking lot. And I said, this looks like fun. I could do this. And and she says, well, I've got a birding book. And she get, pulls out this old hardcover golden guide. Uh, that was at the time nice. was probably 15 years old or something, 10 years old, but it was beat to, you know, already beat to hell, but it was how <laughs> she kept her list. You know, she, when she found a bird, she circled it and she drew little arrows to what she had seen was a male or a female, put the county and the date down in the, in the column. And it was great. And, and I said, well, I need one of those books too. So went in and, and I bought the first uh, Peterson guide to the Eastern birds that actually had the pictures beside the, Beside the, uh, you know, instead of having all the black and white pictures in the middle, like the old Petersons had, right, the yeah. ones where the modern field guide had, you know, plates on the same opposite page as the text and were in color. Uh, and so I bought that. It was, it was fresh off the press. And I bought one of those and we went around and she just gave me immense grief that I wouldn't look at any bird under 12 inches tall. Uh, and it was an f- unbelievable day. I mean, we just saw fabulous things. We Ended up at Flamingo and stayed in the hotel there that night. And, uh, nice. Oh, that was yeah. a great spot. I, I loved Flamingo in the Everglades. That's, yeah. I was really just cool completely spot. hooked. On, on the first, literally the first stop we made was at the, uh, there's the Gumbo Limbo Trail and the, I don't remember what the other trail there is called, but it's the one with, it used to have an extensive network of boardwalks. And at the end of the boardwalk, which, I went there 25 years later with my daughter and the boardwalk's rotten and you can't get out there anymore. Oh. But at the end of the boardwalk uh, was a pool and that pool was, it could have been, I don't know if you've seen, they used to have a poster that you could buy of all the long-legged waders in North America. Yeah. It a, this fabulous poster with egrets and herons and spoonbills and storks. And that could have been a snapshot of that pool. And it was like they were all 25. Every waiter you can imagine. 25 or 30 feet from you were maybe 10 species of waiters. It was just like jaw dropping. And I, I was completely hooked. I just have been birding ever since. So that was my uh, my <laughs> intro to birding, you know, drinking from a fire hydrant. It was terrific. That's, yeah, that's a pretty good place to get a start. And I that's actually still my favorite thing about birding in the South is all the, the abundance of waiters everywhere and how fearless they are too. You know, here you get within a half a mile of a heron or egret and it spooks, but down there, they're just regular little bird roadside birds everywhere. Roseate spoonbills and wood storks. Uh. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Uh, awesome. So uh, you, you took that trip and, and carry on from there. I saw that you spent quite oh, yeah. a bit of time in New Mexico. Yeah. Well, and well, kind of between that, I, uh, I wound up back in Washington state for a while. Uh, 2016, I got a job with, uh, there's a nature bridge, campus uh, right here in Olympic National Park. Um, so that brought me back to Washington and it brought me back to Washington as a like very, very much at that point, hardcore lister when, it, you know, realizing all these birds that were out there that I hadn't seen. And especially coming back to Washington, realizing the great diversity this state has and how very little of it I'd seen while I was here uh, during college. I was like, well, I gotta, I've got to get out and see all the birds but I haven't seen and build my build my Washington life list up. I had no idea there like all the East Side species. I know there were magpies here and blacknecked stilts and things like that. Um, 
So I didn't start out 2016 trying to do a big year. Uh, but same thing as 2015, you know, it ended up being one of those accidental big years where I got to midsummer and I was like, well, I've got a pretty good list. I mean, I should probably try to keep going and see how many birds I can see. Uh, and living in Olympic National Park meant I was very close to Nia Bay. So when fall came around, I was at Nia Bay like once or twice a week, pretty wow. much. Um, and seeing some really, you know, really great birds for Washington, like rose-breasted grosbeak, dick sissel. Um, that was a great, uh, a great fall rarity season here. Uh, that was the fall with rustic bunting too and emperor mm-hmm. goose. Um, yeah, it was just a all around really good for rarities. Um, I ended that year with 347 species. Wow. And that's a good year. It was pretty good. Year. Yeah, it was a great year. And, um, going into 2017 being as obsessed as I am, I was like, well, you know, I had a lot of really easy misses. I, I didn't even see like some breeding species like ptarmigan and sage grouse that I would love to see. I should do a big year, but like actually mean it from the get go this time. And, um, yeah, so 2017 was a lot more, uh, even more driving around covering just about all of the state. And at that point, up until that point, I'd been single and doing lots of travel on my own. But uh, uh, at the end of 2016, I started uh, started dating my partner, now now fiance, Sierra. And uh, so 2017, she joined me on a, you know all these far flung trips around the state. And in, in the process, she uh, she's definitely become a, a good birder in her own right. She wouldn't call herself a birder, but she's, uh, she's really good actually, I'd say now. And she, uh, even like corrects some, I'll make ID mistakes occasionally, or I'll hear a bird. And, uh, you know, I, there was one time I heard a whistling off in the distance. It's like, Oh, there's a pygmy owl. And she listens for a second. And it's like, Alex, that's a, that's a Townsend solitaire. And I listened for another second. I was like, Oh, well, yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, um, we we got around a lot that year, um, and lots of highlights that year. I did finally see lecking sage grouse, which is pretty unforgettable. Um, twenty seventeen was like the year of owls for me. I saw nesting, uh, nesting great gray owls, nesting hawk owls. Uh, I really just completely by accident stumbled across the first, and I believe it was the first documented naturally nesting naturally uh, a boreal owl using a natural nest cavity wow. uh, went out owling at night uh you know deep deep in the cascades and uh heard this flying squirrel chattering and i was looked up and was admiring like wow that's so cool there's this flying squirrel it's right above me on the snag and uh realized it wasn't chattering at me it was chattering at a boreal owl with its head sticking out of its nest cavity looking at the flying squirrel, but then swiveled its head to look straight down at me. Wow. Um, that's, that's spectacular. And that's still, I, that is, that moment is still, I think my best, most like just heart stopping birding moment. I, I think it would, it must've been looking at me for less than a minute before it pulled its head back inside the cavity and mm-hmm. I didn't see it again, but, uh, felt like it was one of those moments it felt like hours that we were locked eyes yeah um, that's that's crazy really yeah cool. so that was that was a great year and i i ended at 360 species um and uh uh yeah the, so going into 2018 i decided to tone things down a bit and uh 
I uh, got a job on Orcas Island working at a, for a whale watching company. Mm-hmm. So out on the water a lot. And uh, the San Juan Islands are fantastic. But in, in a way, you know, it's uh, somewhat isolating. You know, it's, it's a, a big ordeal to, you know, to get a ferry and get off island. You're looking at like an hour and a half just to get yeah. off of the island. So I was definitely more locally focused. And uh, as you can imagine, another accidental uh, big year ended up happening. But that one is a, a county big year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, if I, if I ever end up doing another big year again, I'll definitely be a, a county one. It's a little more manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, and San Juan was a great county for it because, you know, it's just a few small islands and mm-hmm. um, Orcas in particular is pretty underbirded. There's some great birders on San Juan Island, but uh, Orcas birders don't seem to get there very often. So there's lots, lots to find. Um, the, the rarity highlight of that year by far, for sure, was finding a buff-breasted sandpiper uh, at the beginning of September. And that was um, 2018. There was kind of like a mini eruption of buff-breasted sandpipers in the Northwest mm-hmm. that year. You know, they were all up and down the coast. BC, Boundary Bay had like a big flock of them at one point. Uh, but the one I found, what was interesting about it was it was at American Camp, the, the national mm-hmm. park in the south end of San Juan, San Juan Island. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, I found it there. It was walking along in a field uh, off Picket Lane there, and I looked up and uh, I had this uh, really great guide to you know birds of the San Juans, mm-hmm. and it has all the historical records in there. A lot of them which aren't in eBird, mm-hmm. and there's only one other buff-breasted sandpiper record for the San Juans, and it was from that exact same spot in 1979. Wow! And almost to the exact same day. I think it was like they were like three days apart in September. It was like September uh, uh, 10th versus the 7th, I believe, or something like that. It was really close, but, uh, you know, a few decades apart. <laughs> it's yeah. amazing how, how you know, lightning can strike twice, you know, with, with bird rarities like that. Um, and, and it's probably not random. It probably is. Right. A, if, you, if a buff-breasted sandpiper is going to be going through there, that's probably a good place to stop. Yeah. And the timing is not random because that's when the vagrants show up. That's when vagrant buff breasts show up. So Absolutely. Uh, it, it's a, there's something to be said about uh, uh, birding places that have had rarities in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I, in, uh, when I was doing my Washington big year at 2017, I was looking back recently and, you know, preparing for this uh, uh, talk, I was looking at 2016 versus 2017, my Washington big years, 2016, I, I really didn't know much about birds in Washington. So it was a lot of chasing rarity reports. Like mm-hmm. most of the rare birds I saw that year were following reports that other people had found. Going into 2017 um, and 2018 as well, it was a lot more like trying to think about like where rare birds might show up and exactly. trying to and trying to get the timing right. You know, when's that window that vagrants are coming through? And so you know, a lot of fall <laughs> bird, around here in Washington anyways, Fall is that time, that magical time when anything is possible and uh, all the vagrants are coming through. Um, it is, and there's always the dilemma: Do you go east or do you go to Nia Bay? Do you go east or do you go to Nia Bay? It's oh, I'm 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 biased here, especially living on the Olympic Peninsula. I'm all about Nia Bay. You know, it's um, uh, it was uh, sort of a bummer they were closed this last year, but I also totally understand, and I'm, oh. I'm glad the Macaw Tribe made the call to keep yeah. closed during COVID, and uh, but. I am looking forward to the day when I can get back out to Nia Bay, and that's by far my favorite birding location in Washington. Um, yeah. It's it's a place that anything c- 
could show up. Uh, yeah. And is still seriously underburdened just because it's so remote. Absolutely. I, I, I was talking with Will. I said, Will, you know, you're looking for a job. You should find someone who will pay you to just bird Nia Bay for a year. <laughs> document what really comes through. Because honest to goodness, that that is a, I mean, it's just, I don't, you know, do you really understand why the birds show up there? Are they are they uh, coming from the south and just hit the water and get a dead end going the wrong way, or are they coming from the coming from the boreal forest in the in the you know British Columbia that area and end up there or some combination? I you know why do they come there? It's I mean I definitely think the geography plays into it. It's just that part of the Olympic Peninsula juts out so far into the ocean that birds coming from all directions. It's kind of a you know it's it's, it's a migrant trap for sure. Um, either the first land or a dead end, one or the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> either you can't go any further north, or you're coming from the coming from the north, and that's the first land and safe place to stop and refuel. So, yeah, no, it's a it's a great spot for attracting all kinds of migrants. I saw, I saw, I looked at your uh, eBird profile, and you've uh, you've certainly birded uh, uh, Clallam County a lot. <laughs> yes, yeah. I it's I. I, I'm again pretty biased here because I've, I've spent so much time living here, but uh, I think it's the best county for birding in Washington, and definitely really underbirded. I mean, there's there's some really outstanding birders here, but there's it's like fewer than ten people that regularly bird around here, um, mm-hmm. and and mostly in the squim area. You know, the western part of the county, right. especially out towards the coast and Nia Bay, is is not birded very much. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you know there's lots to be found out here like uh, uh lots of potential for sure it, it, it you know what what will the next five uh, you know that contest matt bartell has a, right predict the next five birds that'll be found in washington it's really predict the next five birds that will be found in nia bay <laughs> yeah what what crazy thing is going to show up in nia bay that nobody will expect expect exactly. like the painted red start oh yeah i'm glad i i, I did see that <laughs> i saw that painted red start uh in the Oh, that same fall, the phenopepla showed up in Squim. Uh, yeah, that was a good. That was a good rarity fall, and that was uh, uh, the same fall, the end of twenty eighteen. That's when I ended up getting a job uh, that brought me to New Mexico. Yeah, uh, I saw you. You've got a big New Mexico list too. So. Yeah, so yeah, I, I got. I got my first uh, my first non seasonal job. I got a you know full time job working as an education manager at the New Mexico Wildlife Center. Um, so a little, you know, uh, uh, wildlife rescue center that also has like an education side, uh, just a little ways north of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And yeah, that job brought me down there. Um, and yeah, it was pretty exciting because I never really birded New Mexico. I only birded Arizona even a couple brief times, you know, like less than, I've had less than like, at that point, less than like two days of birding in Arizona. So the Southwest was full of lifers and, you know, birds, all kinds of things I'd never seen. Um, so uh, you can probably guess where this is going with 2019, uh, trying to see all these birds around New Mexico that I'd never seen before. It became another very much unintentional, accidental big year. Um, and same thing with my other, there's, a, there's definitely a pattern with my big years. I got to like the end of July and I was still adamant at that point that I wasn't doing a big year. I was like, I'm just casually going around the state, seeing some exciting birds. But at the end of July, I, uh, I had an opportunity to, to go on a, it's kind of a, if you're a New Mexico birder, there's, uh, 
a, a one of the biggest bucket list places you got to go and make a pilgrimage to is Guadalupe Canyon. And it's definitely a place that requires some planning though. And you need, it's ideal to go there in a small group because it's, it's right on the border and you've got to start the hike in from Arizona, three miles through Arizona, uh, right along the border. And the best time to go is when all the breeding birds from Mexico are there, which is, you know, peak summer heat. So you're, you're hiking in under cover of darkness. And so I was lucky to get a, a group of local birders from Santa Fe, um, uh, Jeff and Renee, they were local birders there. Uh, Renee Laubach was a great Santa Fe birder that I ended up going birding with a lot. Uh, he's a great guy. He used to be the, the uh, president of uh, Audubon Society of Massachusetts and retired in New Mexico. Uh, he's a fantastic birder. And we also teamed up with uh, Kurt Ongman, who was uh, doing uh, uh, research on burrowing owls in the Albuquerque area. So the four of us went on this crazy drive down to Arizona, um, hiked into Guadalupe Canyon, and I think it was like 18 new state birds on that one day alone, because there's a lot of stuff that breeds in that canyon that you can't find anywhere else in New Mexico. Uh, Thick-billed kingbirds, greyhawk black-capped gnatcatchers, uh, rufous-winged sparrows, as well as violet-crowned hummingbirds and broad-billed hummingbirds. So it was it was mind-blowing going down there. And uh, we did this big, you know, I'm trying to remember if it was like, uh, I think about eight, nine, nine miles total of hiking and the latter part in like midday, finishing in midday heat. Mm-hmm. Um and so we retreated to one of the higher canyons in the Paloncillos Mountains. So the Paloncillos is like the, uh, it's a sky island in New Mexico. Uh, a lot of great potential like the, you know, like the Chiricahuas, but with pretty limited public access. There's only a couple public roads that go through there. But mm-hmm. we went to one of the high spots and set up a bunch of hummingbird feeders all around oh, and spent, spent the afternoon hiding in the shade while we watched these like five or six different hummingbird feeders we had along the road. And it was, uh, <laughs> Kurt described it as like a, like a boss battle. Like there was like, you know, hummingbirds sneaking up on us and we're like, wait, no, look, there's one over there. And no, no, we got another one coming up here. And, um, you know, we had all the, the usual suspects, the black chin, Rufus, broadtail, calliope. And pretty quickly we got one of the specialty birds we were hoping for, uh, Lucifer, which is a lifer for me. Lucifer hummingbird showed up at one of the feeders. And there were also, there were some broad bills up there too. And I heard a very familiar grating call that and Anna's came in. Yeah, we got an Anna's, which is good for New Mexico. Um, and um, and then the last one, uh, we had uh, Anna's, Costa's. Oh yeah, and um, the Costa's that showed up was, uh, we were, we'd been speculating about Costa's throughout the day and uh, Jeff kept saying, oh, you know, uh, Costas, it's just the females around. They're really hard to pick out. The males only come through in April. You know, that's the only time to see male Costas hummingbirds in New Mexico. And what do you know? This male Costas comes and lands at one of the bird feeders. Um, so, yeah, it uh, ended up being a really good day. And after that point, I was like, OK, so now I'm definitely doing a New Mexico big year. And I, uh, I spent the fall, the, the uh, birding big year in New Mexico, if you really want to see a lot of species, um, fall is the time for vagrants. And what's so great about New Mexico is it's right on the continental divide. Oh, yes. And and like a lot of the other Rocky Mountain states, it's mostly 
mountainous Western birds. Um, so more of the stuff you would expect from the West. But it's also, like I mentioned, it's got all those Southern birds from Mexico. So a lot of the birds that people think of being Southeastern Arizona specialties, they're in that little part of Southwest New Mexico too. And then New Mexico has the Eastern edge of the state that's on the plains. And oh. there's all these, these little migrant traps out there. It's, it's mostly wide open cropland and grazing land where there's overall not a ton of diversity, but you get to these little oases, different parks, uh, like Melrose Woods is the most famous one. It's, you know, we're talking like maybe only an acre or two, really small patch of woods, but they're the only trees for miles and miles and miles. Mm -hmm. So you go there in fall and it's full of migrants. And because it's so far east in the state, it's a lot of eastern warblers and flycatchers. Um, just a really interesting mix of birds um, and uh, had some really unexpected finds that that fall. Uh, I had one vireo that I thought for sure was blue-headed vireo and I took a lot of photos. Blue-headed vireo is good for New Mexico too mm -hmm. and uploaded the photos and somebody pointed out that's actually a, a female black-capped vireo. Oh. Which I didn't realize it at the time but it was a lifer for me and uh, one of the very few records for New Mexico. Um, so yeah, it uh, ended up being a really, really fun big year in New Mexico. I only got, and I say only, only 384 species, uh, which at the time was the third biggest year for New Mexico. Uh, but just this last year, uh, I think four different birders in New Mexico uh, went out and they, they totally crushed that record. There's four different people that got over 400 species, uh, which, you know, is, you know, if you're very, if you're intentional about it, and last year was a great year of birding in New Mexico, um, you can definitely get 400. Um, I think the, I'm trying to remember the record. I think it's still like 425 species. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's an incredibly uh, diverse state. Um, so uh, I, I would never have thought of that. I think in New Mexico, desert mountains, what else is there? You know? Right. Uh, it's, but, it's, but, yeah. You know, a lot of people. A, a bias, you know? Yeah, a lot of people, if they're burning the Southwest, you know, they go to Texas, they go to Arizona, but I think New Mexico is a fantastic state for birding, uh, which is why I was, I was kind of crushed when, I, when all this COVID stuff was beginning a, a year ago. Uh, I, I lost my job at the Wildlife Center, uh, mm -hmm. which, which is a shame. You know, I, I got a lot of great experience there working hands-on with raptors for education programs and helping out in a wildlife rehabilitation hospital. Uh, all great experiences, but... Uh, that came to an end, and uh, the silver lining in that is my uh, my partner, my my fiance Sierra. She uh, she got a job with Olympic National Park, so we oh. we had an opportunity to move back to Washington State, back uh, to Port Angeles here. Um, so I spent most of last year back here and uh, working odd jobs around grocery stores, which is not the most fun place to be during the pandemic, but. Uh, uh, I really lucked out and uh, I got a job still in retail, but working for a, a local Wild Birds Unlimited shop. So I'm still doing retail work, but I, I get to talk a lot about birds at work. So um, yeah, I got, I got fortunate with that. And uh, overall, last year was just a lot of uh, birding locally. You know, I had all these big plans of traveling, as I'm sure a lot of people did last year, that uh, suddenly became, well, what, what birds can I find right around me near close by? Um, so it's a good well, year for that. A lot when you live in Port Angeles. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm lucky to have two really good hotspots 
within a stone's throw of my house. Uh, Edda's Hook is just down the hill from That's me. Great, that, yeah. that, that has like become my patch. Uh, I, especially over the summer, I was there pretty much every day. Um, and between there and the Elwha River mouth, uh, mm-hmm. there's some pretty good bird activity. Uh, and I like both those spots cause you can actually walk along the beach there. And recently in the past year, uh, uh, me and my partner, we got a, a pandemic pup. We have this, we, before we left New Mexico, we adopted, we adopted this Husky shepherd mix. Her name's Mia. And, uh, I had a lot of fears about getting a dog as a birder. It's like, oh no, you know, there, there goes all my birding time. I'm just going to be walking and going too fast to be birding at all anymore when I go out. But uh, I will say she's actually a great birding companion. She's a great birding dog. Uh, she definitely, and I'm definitely more active on my birding walks now. There's a lot more walking involved, which I think is probably good for me. I think as, as birders, we have a tendency to, you know, walk hundred yards into the trail and be stopped for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, you know, having a dog, it keeps me moving a little bit more, but, um, you know, I, I lucked out and got a dog that's got a really great, you know, temperament. She's very, she gets excited about things for sure. And she's got to, she's got to always be unleashed because she was a stray. So she'll chase anything that moves and she'll chase until she can try to catch it. So I keep her on leash, but, um, overall she's pretty calm and you know, I, after I walk her for a while, I can set up my tripod and scope some goals for a while and she'll take a little nap underneath my tripod. So, yeah. Well, you know, you've got uh, two birding companions now, uh, a fiance and a dog. So life could be worse. (laughs) Life could be worse than that. I got to break away for a second. You've had at least two different jobs with Nature Bridge. Now that's an organization I've never heard of. Tell me about Nature Bridge. Yeah, they're uh, they're an environmental education nonprofit. Um, so, like a lot of the places I've worked for, like North Cascades Institute, uh, Chuanki, they do these uh, residential uh, uh, education programs. So, school groups come there, they stay and camp out or stay in cabins for a few days, um, and then during the day we're hiking around and doing hands-on science. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I loved about uh, Nature Bridge and working for them. So they have a lot of citizen science they do with their students. So there's a lot of gathering water quality data, um, doing things like Project Bud Burst, where we go out and monitor specific plants to see, um, to really learn about the phenology of the plant, you know, when they're budding, when the flowers are starting, all that stuff. And comparing that data year after year and seeing how uh, climate change is affecting uh, the budding of plants. So mm-hmm. um yeah, lots of really great hands-on science for kids. Um, you know, definitely the kind of the kind of work that I that I love to do and want to be. Uh, hopefully, we'll be getting back into at some point. Um, Just curious about that organization. Are they nationwide or are they? Yeah, they've got a few different locations. They started in Yosemite, uh, and they've got a, a campus now in uh, Golden Gate, you know, National Recreation Area by San Francisco. Uh, they've got one outside the D.C. area. Uh, the one here in Olympic. Uh, and unfortunately, the the location that was uh, based out of the Santa Monica Mountains, where I was working and going to the Channel Islands, uh, the you know the really bad fires hit that area. I mean, there's bad fires every year down in California lately. But uh, two years ago, that whole area was burned really badly, and they had to close that campus, mm. uh, unfortunately. But uh, but yeah, the uh, the other campuses are still going strong. Uh, I've got a, a good birding friend. Uh, Joe Zofri, he still works at the Olympic location. Uh, he's one of my good 
Clallam County birding friends. Uh, if I'm going to go out owling last minute, I'll hit him up and we'll go look for sawets in the Olympic foothills. So, um, Very nice. yeah. Good. Uh, so uh, what do you see going forward? Are you going to be uh, staying local in the, in the Port Angeles area and looking for work around there? Or are you still interested in uh, no. work wherever the best uh, job comes up? Well, uh, birding wise, I definitely think I'll be staying pretty local this year for the, you know, for the foreseeable future anyway. And, um, you know, lots of great birds in Clallam and uh, nearby I've kind of started to get into listing in Jefferson County as well. And that's, that's pretty close by. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm, I think my, my dream would be to find a way to combine my passion for birds and my love of teaching, whether that's bird guiding or working, you know, somewhere in outdoor school or outdoor education program that it really has a great focus on wildlife and birds. Um, so I think that's, that's where my passion is, is, you know, sharing that, that excitement that I get when I'm out in nature, seeing birds, seeing a new bird or uh, wildlife for the first time, uh, sharing that with others, especially sharing that with kids and sparking that, that lifelong interest in nature and, and the outdoors that's, you know, that's what I want to be doing, whatever, whatever shape or form that, that ends up taking. Um, I'm, I'm open to possibility right now and uh, what the future well, might hold. That's not a bad place to be. Good for you, Alex. I'm, uh, I'm going to put in a little uh, prayer tonight that uh, just the right opportunity comes your way and that you Thank land you. it. So that would be good. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to wrap up. How can listeners reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you? What's the best way to find you, Alex? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I actually have a, I've got a public Instagram where I, I put, I, I'm by no means a photographer, but I, I am a birder that carries a camera with me most of the time. And every once in a while I get some okay shots and, or I luck out and get a good shot. But um, I put a lot of those on my Instagram and, you know, share some of my birding stories there. So my Instagram is uh, birdman underscore uh, Pasha. My last name is P-A-T-I-A. Okay. Um, and, uh, and folks can reach out to me via email too. Uh, my email is alexpasha89 at gmail.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, if people have questions about birding or if, if you know about a, a cool bird guiding or naturalist opportunity and want to reach out, uh, I'm, I'm happy to chat with folks there, uh, through email too. Um, yeah. Terrific. That's exactly what I was hoping for. I always give a chance for my guests to, to uh, put a plug in for any particular cause that they uh, are passionate about. Is there a, uh, you know, some sort of a, a cause or movement or other thing that you want to uh, give a shout out to? Yeah, um, I was thinking about this a lot. There's, there's a lot of birding causes I'm really passionate about. But, uh, you know, after working at a, a wildlife rescue center, um, I definitely have seen how underfunded uh, wildlife rescue centers often are. Um, they do a lot of important work saving um, saving wildlife, injured wildlife that come their way. So my plug, I guess, would be uh, find your local wildlife rescue center. Uh, we are lucky to have a lot of them here in Western Washington. You know, we've got PAWS in the Seattle area, uh, Progressive Animal Welfare Society. They help both domestic animals, cats and dogs, and they do a lot uh, with their uh, a wildlife rescue center there as well. Um, there's Sarvi up in Arlington and Wolf Hollow on San Juan Island. So we've got some really great ones here. But no matter where you are, if you're in the U.S. or Canada, um, 
there's a good chance there's a wildlife rescue center close to you and they always need donations. Um, but if you're somebody like me that doesn't have a lot of cash to spare, you know, they're always also looking for uh, items to be donated to. A lot of them on their websites, they'll, you know, they need towels and dog food and other things to help care for wildlife they have. Um, and especially if you have a lot of time on your hands, most of these places, you know, they maybe have some staff. A lot of wildlife rescue centers I know are just veterinarians donating their time. Uh, so they're always looking for volunteers. And even if you can just come in every week or two, once, you know, for a few hours, that helps a lot. And uh, it's a really cool experience too, to be able to, to help care for wild animals and to have the opportunity to see them go back into the wild again. Yeah, it's, it's really great. And uh, a lot of these places too, they, they don't just save wildlife. A lot of them have a big education focus and do a lot of outreach to show people how to live, you know, safely with wildlife and, and you know, uh, be responsible about uh, uh, where we live and making sure that wildlife can live alongside us, whether it's having bird-friendly windows, keeping your cat inside, uh, planting native plants, not using pesticides mm -hmm. like rodenticides. Um, you know, we can have a, a huge we can have a huge positive or negative impact based on our, our actions and choices. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of wildlife rescue centers are work, really working hard to, to get people to make better choices for, for birds and wildlife in their, in their communities. So, um, yeah, I think they're a great way to get, get involved and, and help out wildlife where you live. That's terrific. I'll, I'll put a, a shout out. I had a guest on, uh, and I am terrible with names. Like it was a year or two ago, but she's a big bird rehabber. Uh, nice. and, and she actually wrote a novel uh, a, based on her bird rehab experiences in the bird rehab community. And uh, in my uh, outro, which will be shortly following this, I'll have looked up her name and the episode number and the name awesome. of her book. It's a, it was really, I love the book. It was really fun reading. Uh, so nice. uh, I'll, I'll email you that when I, I get a chance to look it up. Uh, yeah, but, I'll, check, I'll check that out. Yeah, so good. Alex, thanks so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on, Ed. And uh, yeah, have, have a great rest of your day and happy birding out there. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner podcast with Alex Pacha. I have to say, it embarrasses me when I've had a fascinating guest on, like Susie Gilbert, who was my guest on episode 55, when we talked about bird rehab and her experiences as an author, she wrote a book called Unflappable. It's a novel uh, that involves characters who are bird rehabbers. It's a really fun mystery quest expedition sort of book. I think you'll enjoy it if you check out the book Unflappable. But anyway, she was my guest on episode number 55. And when Alex started talking about bird rehab programs, I could not think of her name. But Susie Gilbert, expert author and passionate bird rehabber. Check out her book. Check out the podcast episode 55. I think you'll enjoy it. And thanks again for listening today. I appreciate it. I had so much fun talking with Alex today and hearing his story, uh, his big years, sort of accidental, incidental big years that are uh, a lot like uh, the experiences many of us may have from time to time. Uh, so I appreciate you listening. Uh, please leave a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcast feeds. Uh, reach out to me using the contact form on the birdbanner.com website. I'll also, as usual, uh, have a uh, blog post uh, put up associated with this episode with links and more information related to the things we talked about. So thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding.
Good day.